Good morning. The scripture reading for today will be from 1 Samuel, uh, chapter 2, from verse 12 to 36. So 1 Samuel, chapter 2, from verses 12 to 36. Now read. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priest with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up for the priest, or sorry, all that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her fa- sorry, when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. Indeed, the Lord visited Hannah, and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord. Verse 22. Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel, and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he said to them, Why do you do such things? For I hear of the evil dealings from all these people. No, my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. Verse 27. And there came a man of God to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling? And honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, declares, I promise that your house and the house of your father should go in and out before me forever. But now the Lord declares, Far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. 
Behold, the days are coming when I will cut off your strength and the strength of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house. Then in distress you will look with envious eye on all the prosperity that shall be bestowed on Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. The only one of you whom I shall not cut off from my altar shall be spared to weep his eyes out, to grieve his heart, and all the descendants of your house shall die by the sword of men. And this shall come upon your two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, shall be the sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before me, before my anointed forever. And everyone who is left in your house shall come to implore him for a piece of silver or a loaf of bread, and shall say, Please put me in one of the priest's places, that I may eat a morsel of bread. This is the word of the Lord. Please let us pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to, to be here and to learn at your feet. Uh, God, we pray that your word will be like fire that will melt our hearts today. It would be like this hammer that will break the hardened places in our heart. I pray, God, that through your word we will come to see you as our greatest and ultimate treasure. That we will truly come to yield ourselves to you. And we will see the extent of your love for us. And that your name will always be glorified in our lives. May your name be praised always, Father. In Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning. <laughs> um, thank you guys for having me. Um, the title of the message today is God's Consent for Integrity. And what I would try to do is sort of walk through the passage without reading it again, since it's very long. Uh, and just try to draw out some observations as we study. Um, before we get into it, I wanted to sort of bring up two humbling reminders, right? Especially for myself. Um, one is, no matter who is up here teaching, right, we are all redeemed sinners, always in this process of growth and becoming more Christ-like. So a, a proper way for me to introduce myself, actually, is to say I am Tolu, and I am a recovering sinner. <laughs> uh, the, the second reminder is that through the narrative of Scripture, there is this theme that God opposes the proud, but gives more grace to the humble. And as we go through this passage today, I would like you to keep that in mind and to continue to look for sightings of pride and humility, both in the passage and then also in our hearts, right? so that we continue to be open to God. And I would also like you to keep abreast of any sightings of the grace and the mercy of God in this passage, so that that way we continue to see Christ in our scriptures. So our story today picks up in the time of Judges, right? And in the latter part of the book of Judges, it comes to be characterized by this phrase, which you can find in Judges 17.6 or Judges 21.25, and it says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. What is interesting about that time period is Israel never had kings. They hadn't had any king up until that time. And so the question becomes, who is this king that the scripture is talking about? We all know that Israel's true king is God, 
right? Just as we know God is our king. And so the essence of that passage really is that they rejected God. The nation of Israel continually rejected God, right? This was a time that was marked by great moral apostasy, uh, where everyone did what they felt was right. And if we are being honest and we look at our day to day, it bears great similarities, right, to our time, where we have this concept of relative truth. Now, if I were to bring it home to myself, and if I'm being honest, for the most part, I act in the same way, right? I want what I want, when I want it, how I want it, right? And it always takes the grace of God to convict and to bring one back, right? And, and so in rejecting God, Israel was basically going towards disaster unless God stepped in and saved them. Uh, uh, we saw in last week's sermon in chapters 1 to 2 that God is at work through the humble through the humble and lowly Hannah, who is desperately dependent on God. So chapter 2 begins with Anna praising God. Right? We have that sort of poetry of praise towards God. And again, through that poetry of praise, we have this theme that is basically summarized by God opposes the proud, but he gives more grace to the humble. So please keep that in mind as we study the passage today. Um, I'm basically going to organize my thoughts on this study on the five headings, which I'll be walking through and be giving you the verses. And the first one is false worship, which we'll cover from verses, 20, from verses 12 to 21. What you might notice when we read that passage is that the author uses this literary style of always juxtaposing the behavior of the sons of Eli and that of Samuel. It's almost like he goes through a description of the sons of Eli, and then he brings us back to what Samuel is doing. Right? And the idea behind that is to show us uh, what false worship looks like, regardless of outside, outward appearances, regardless of our status, societal standing, or what have you. Right? Because the sons of Eli were supposed to be the priest, right? like the, the mature adult, in a sense. And then you have Samuel, who is basically a boy, still growing up. Right? But there's that juxtaposition. And so verse 12 starts out by saying, the sons of Eli were worthless men. Then he gives us the reason. They did not know the Lord. Right? And, and Hophni and Phinehas um, had become so settled and bold in their sin that they even had their servants basically carry out their sin. And I'll describe what that looks like. Right? But, but I want to note that the, 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 the effect of continuous sin is that our hearts become seared. Our conscience becomes seared. So let me better explain the sins of the men. Uh, back in Leviticus chapter 7, God had basically instituted certain ordinances uh, in terms of how the children of Israel would worship him. And one of them was for them to bring offerings to the Lord. Right? And in bringing the offerings to the Lord, they were supposed to first burn the meat. And because the fat, the, the burning of the meat was symbolically giving the offering to God first. It was a way for them to sort of give the offering to God first. And then afterwards, they would sort of break out the meat and everybody would eat and there would be a feast, right? What the sons of Eli were doing was that they were taken from the meat even before the fat was burned. Essentially, they were, in a sense, taken before the Lord. And they were not just doing that. It wasn't like a one-time Affair, it was a consistent thing they were doing. They had become so settled in it that they even had their own servants 
go do that. And in the passage, if you recall, uh, the servants would basically say, give meat for the priest. And if the laymen who actually understood the scripture more than the priests were to say, oh, wait, let's actually burn it up first, they would say, no, we will take it by force. So, so again, you begin to see the state of their heart. Later in verse 22, it says that the sons of Eli lay with the women who were serving at the entrance of the tent of meeting. The author gives this information because the tent of meeting is supposed to be this place, almost like the center of worship unto God. You see that in Exodus 33, 7 to 11. And so, again, they had become so brazen that they really didn't care about the presence of the Lord, right? They were more willing to engage in illicit sexual relations with women that were supposed to be serving at the tent of meeting, basically serving before the presence of God. You see, not only were the sons of Eli blatantly dishonoring God by their continued actions, see, they were also probably leading people away from God. Because if you're supposed to be the priest, and this is how you act, why should I follow such a God? In a sense, they were saying with their actions that there is no God. You see, in Psalm 14, verse 1, it says that the fool says in his heart, right? the fool says in his heart, not necessarily with his lips, that there is no God. How does the fool say that? Through the actions. So through the actions, the sons of Eli were basically saying, there is no God. We can do whatever we want to do. Right? And again, if you go back to that phrase that characterizes the latter part of the book of Judges, right, that basically sums up their attitude. Right? It says, in those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. This was what the sons of Eli were doing. Right? This is what false worship looks like. Even though they were priests in the house of the Lord, dressed the right way, probably saying the right things, their actions, which is an expression of their heart, was really not for God. And so the question I have to ask myself when I read such a passage is, in what ways is my life similar to that of the sons of Eli? Right? Where am I offering false worship to God? Now, please note that I'm not talking about our struggle with sin. Right? We will all continue to struggle with sin. Right? But, but what I mean by that word struggle is that we are convicted and we repent and there is that fight against sin. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, the sons of Eli had basically gotten to this point where they didn't care. The heart was seared. Their conscience was essentially gone. Right, so the Christian is one who truly struggles with sin. Right? There is always that fight, that, the back and forth. Because if you do not struggle with sin, then you are either perfect, which if you are, I want to know who you are, <laughs> or your conscience is seared. And then most likely, you might not be a Christian. So what I'm saying here is this. Where are we living so boldly in sin without any hint of remorse or repentance? Where do we say with our actions that there is no God? Right? And that could be unbelief. And this is humbling for me. 
And so this is an example, this is an illustration of false worship. And then right in verses 18 to 21, the author basically juxtaposes false worship, which the sons of Eli were exhibiting with what Samuel was doing. Basically, he was ministering before the Lord. Now, please note that this wasn't like a one-time practice for Samuel. It was a continued way of life for him. He was ministering before the Lord. So now that we've seen what false worship looks like and what the sons of Eli were doing, you might ask the question, what would Eli himself do? What is his response to this? And so the next observation I have here is the coddling of sin from verses 22 to 26. See, as you would expect, Eli obviously had heard about what his sons were doing. Right, he, he knew what they were doing. He confronted them about their sexual immorality. He rebukes them, and he actually points to the fact that if you sin against God, who is going to intercede for you? But you see, Eli was complicit in their sin as well because he, he either rebuked them too lightly or it came too late. But more than that, we, we also see that Eli actually never moved to remove his sons from being priests. And by implication, he also ate out of the stolen meat or the stolen food. Essentially, when they took before the Lord, it was for the family. Eli was participating in that. He was eating of that food. So we see no real conviction in Eli. Even though he did say the words and he did rebuke them, but he never moved to remove them. See, Eli, by cuddling their sins, and his own sin was also dishonoring God. You see, perhaps, right, and this is a suggestion, it's not in the passage, perhaps Eli cared more about the shame that would come upon his family if he removed the sons. Perhaps he cared more about that than God's honor. Right? And, and again, this is a sobering point for me. Because where am I cuddling sin in my life? Right? What am I more concerned about than the honor of God? Right? That, that could be the desire for marriage, for a family, a successful career, right? wealth, comfort, you know, all good things. But again, they, they have to be put in their place with respect to God. Right? So the Bible says that the sons of Eli did not listen to their father. For it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now, don't get distracted by that as if God just planned to kill them. Uh, the, the way you should read that is that they, they had gotten to a point where they had continually rejected God. And then the day of judgment, that time of judgment, is near. So right at the end of the section, again, we get that juxtaposition. After we see the cuddling of sin by Eli, we come back to Samuel and it says, Now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with man. That's verse 26. Now, I'll come back later to this phrase, but what I want you to see again is this juxtaposition. We see Eli cuddling the sins of his kids and himself, but Samuel continually ministering before the presence of the Lord. And so the time has come for God to address the dishonor that is happening in his house. And so my next observation is from verses 27 to 36. Basically, this idea of God cleaning house. So if you go back to Anna's poetry at the beginning of chapter 2, 
again, we get that theme of God opposing the proud but giving more grace to the humble and judgment coming. And when we think of that, what we naturally think of is that God is about to judge non-Israelites. Right? We think of the, maybe the Philistines or those that have come against God's people or whatnot, right? But as we all know, judgment has to start in the house of the Lord. It usually starts there. God is about to clean house. And so God sends this man to Eli, and basically there's this prophetic judgment against Eli and his family, and God basically lays out like a reason for it, which I want to walk through. So basically God says to Eli, I made myself known to you and to your family, and I have shown you mercy by allowing you to be a priest, right, you and your family. And in addition to that, I have provided for you. Because the priests were not supposed to work, they were supposed to be fully, sorry, the, the, the tribe of Levites, to be solely focused on uh, worshipping God and leading people to that and uh, caring for uh, the tent. And so God says, if I've done all of this for you, why then do you scorn my offerings and sacrifices? Right? Why do you honor your sons above me by fattening yourselves on the choicest part of every offering? of my people. So at first you might think it's weird that God is laying those charges at Eli, but like we said before, uh, Eli is the head of the family. He is responsible. Secondly, he knew what his sons were doing, but he never moved to remove them. And then he also partook of the food, though. He knew what they were doing, and he also was eating of the food. Right? So he knew the irreverence of his sons, but he continued. In First Samuel chapter 3, the, the following chapter, God says this about Eli. And I, God, declare to him, Eli, that I am about to punish his house forever for the iniquity that he knew because his sons were blaspheming God and he did not restrain them. He did not act. He did not move. Right, so again, the questions we will ask ourselves is, where are we almost like offering this half-hearted repentance to God, right? Where are we not truly taking action? And again, this is for all of us. A question I like to ask myself is, whose approval am I seeking that I am so willing to dishonor God? Or whose rejection do I fear so much right, that I am willing to go against God? And so the story progresses, and we have judgment proclaimed on Eli and his household, and the fulfillment of the judgment will come in waves. In chapter 4, the sons of Eli die, and Eli himself die. Uh, in First Samuel chapter 22, 85 members of the descendants of Eli are killed by Saul. And um, eventually the line of Eli is displaced in First Kings chapter 2 uh, by Zadok and then his own lineage. But, but what I want to say about that judgment is that we might think it's about God just sort of killing a bunch of folks, but it's not really about that, right? It's about God turning his back towards them. It's almost like he's cutting them off from his presence. And, and again, I want you to note that. We will come back to that. But th that theme is basically that God turns his back on Eli and his household. Now, if we were to step back, in all honesty, we are no different than Eli and his sons, right? We might not commit their specific sins, but 
We all do the same thing in different ways, right? But if God is going to judge them, which he did, because he's a righteous judge, then what are we to say for ourselves? Right? Because we do have a problem there. Because the Bible clearly says in Romans 3.26 that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what then is our hope? Because again, we're essentially like the sons of Eli and Eli. Right? So let me go on to the next observation in verse 35. Uh, which is this hope in the midst of judgment. Let me read verse 35. It says, And I will raise up for myself a faithful priest, who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. And I will build him a sure house, and he shall go in and out before my anointed forever. Uh, one of the truly merciful things about God <laughs> is that he has this heart that is so inclined towards grace, towards mercy. Even in the midst of judgment, you see the heart of God always trying to pull people back, always trying to bring us back into reconciliation with himself. Right? And that's what verse 35 is about. The question you might ask is, who is this faithful priest in verse 35? Right? So on one hand, you could think it's Samuel, and it sort of fits the bill. Right? But Samuel is more of the last judge, and he's also more of a prophet. Uh, some theologians believe that the priest referenced here might be Zadok, who was installed as priest during the reign of Solomon. Uh, and he was also the priest when the temple was finally constructed. Uh, but we know that both Samuel and Zadok are simply men, right? Ordinary men. And we go back to that verse that says, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So they are also sinners, right? Redeemed sinners, right? You see, but the true fulfillment of that promise is in one who will be both priest of God and God's own anointed, the one we call Jesus Christ. Right? And you might ask, why? Let me go back to 1 Samuel 1.26. It says, sorry, 1 Samuel 2.26. It says, now the young man Samuel continued to grow both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Now, that phrase sounds oddly familiar, right? And you see it again in Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and it says this, And Jesus increased in wisdom, and in stature, and in favor with God and man. So essentially, Luke is pointing us back to this promise, pointing us back to Samuel, right? In a sense, Samuel is almost like a pointer towards Christ, in a sense, right? And so Luke is pointing us back to this story to help us see that the faithful priest of God is Christ. And Christ will, con will go on to be the atonement sacrifice for our sins so that we can be reconciled back to God. And, and I hope you see the deliberate act of God, the sovereign hand of God in moving things towards the, this promise of salvation that will come or will be fulfilled in Christ Jesus. And, and so the, we, we asked that question earlier, who can mediate between man and God? Who can intercede between man and God? The right answer is Jesus Christ, because it is Christ who is both God and man. Right? We have all sinned and we deserve judgment, but Christ took on our judgment. You see, judgment day came early for Christ on the cross. And remember we talked about how 
the central theme of God's judgment is like God turning away from the household of Eli. In essence, Christ suffered that as well on the cross when he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Right, so we see that Christ truly is that faithful priest. He, the only one who is righteous and doesn't deserve judgment, actually takes on our punishment so that we who deserve judgment and punishment can take on his reward, can take on salvation and union with God. So this is what we read, rest our heads upon. Right? This is what we depend upon. We do not depend on our good nature because we are not good. Right? We do not depend on good works because we are a mess. Right? <laughs> I mean, our righteousness is like what few the rags, right? And the Puritans will tell you that even the tears of our repentance needs to be washed by the blood of the Lamb. Right? We're just inadequate when it comes to the struggle with sin. We need to depend on Christ. We cannot depend on our wealth, ability, social standing, what have you. All of those things, they are artifacts of a dying world. They are artifacts of a transient world. They mean nothing before the judgment throne of God. Right? All we have and all we need is to rest on the finished work of Christ. This is what strengthens us. Right? This is what keeps us grounded. This is what we can hang our head upon. Right? When we are in Christ, we know we have peace with God. Right? We know we have been adopted into the family of Christ. Right? We know we have been offered grace. And grace is like demerited favor. I say demerited favor instead of unmerited favor because we actually deserve judgment. Right? And then he comes to give us a son. It's almost like a father uh, goes to death row and picks out the hardened criminal and says, come, let me adopt you into my family. And you are now mine. But he doesn't stop there. He says, because there has to be an exchange, take my son instead and kill him. Right? That's what God has done for us. Right? This is why we can depend on him. And so with all of this, your question might be, what is the implication or the takeaway for me and you as we read this passage? Right? And so I get to my fifth and final observation, uh, a way of life. I have only one major application for us. We've talked quite a bit about sin, and we've made this distinction that we are not talking about. Like On one hand, we have a continued sin where your heart is seared and you just don't care again about God's view, right? which is captured by the sons of Eli. And then we also have this concept of the struggle with sin that we have here on the side of eternity. And that the Christian life is the struggle between your old nature and your new nature, right? And that struggling with sin is actually not a bad thing. It's a sign that you are alive in the fight, in the fight against sin. It is evidence of God's work, of the Holy Spirit's work upon our hearts, right? So... Eli's sons, like I said, were no longer struggling with sin. They had gotten to a point where that was just their way of life. What then should be our way of life? You see, we have all been given the gift of life, the gift of years. Right? We don't know when our time is up, but we've been given a gift while we're here. Right? And I believe the greatest opportunity we have is life with God, being an apprentice and a disciple of Christ. 
What keeps us away from that is our sin nature. And our nature, the, the sin, is essentially a rejection of God. And that is what keeps us from enjoying that kind of life with God. And, and we've talked about how we are helpless against sin in and of ourselves. And our hope lies in the redemptive work of God. So what then should be our way of life? And my suggestion is that repentance must be our way of life. It must be an integral part of our life. It must become our natural posture. Right? You might have noticed that in the passage, with everything that happened, everything Eli heard about, and the judgment that came, he didn't repent. It's like, what's going on? Like, beg God, say something. Pray for repentance. Like, try to change your ways. Yes, there's this judgment that has been pronounced, but do something. Right? In, in 1 Samuel 3, 18, the next chapter, God reviews his judgment against Eli, and then Eli gives this unnerving response. Verse 18, so Samuel told him everything, basically the judgment of God, and hid nothing from him. And Eli said, it is the Lord. Let him do what seems good to him. And like, of course he is the Lord. He's going to do what seems good to him. How about we repent? Like, how about we go back to God? Right? And so, again, the way of life we should take on, the, impl the application or the implication we should take from this passage is that we want to be the humble, uh, the ones who throw themselves at the feet of the cross the one who admits that I, by myself I can't do much against sin and I need God. Uh, the reformer Martin Luther, in his first thesis, he says, when our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said repent, he intended that the entire life of believers should be repentance. It's from that quote we get this phrase, all of life is repentance. Right. So repentance isn't meant to be this one-time inaugural activity I do. Right? It's meant to be a continual posture of our hearts. There is no true walk with God without repentance, unless we are perfect. At least I'm not. Right? And, and, and so if we're serious about our faith, we, we, we have to take on this way of life, of repentance. Now, what does that mean? Now, without getting into details, right? because there's no need to be very prescriptive, it's basically this turning towards God that then leads to turning away from sin. It's an acknowledgement of sin. It's an ownership, an owning, a taking responsibility of sin. Right? And then it's an appeal to the mercies of God. Right? And so the question again that I would ask is, how often does repentance feature in my relationship with God? Right, in my personal walk with God, how often does repentance show up? Right? Do my sin patterns, do they even bother me anymore? Or am I getting to that place where I'm just like, eh, it's just life. Let's just move on. Right? And so no matter where you are, please know this. God wants you in his life. He wants you, sorry, God wants you in his family. This is why he freely gave us Christ. Right? The greatest gift that God gives is himself. This is what he has given to me and you. Right, so at the end of the day, I want you to know that God loves you. No matter where you are, 
God wants you to be a part of his family. You are never far too gone from God. You are never far too dirty from God, for God. Right? There is nothing you can do personally to separate yourself from the love of God unless you reject him. Right? You get what I'm saying? What I'm saying is your sins are no match for the mercies of God. Right? So again, I, I leave you with that application that repentance must be our way of life. Thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time and your presence. Thank you for your word to us. Um, help us to always come before you, to know that we are loved. And if we come to you, your arms are wide open to always receive us and to welcome us back into the fold. Make us have this hard posture of repentance. Give us a broken heart and a contrite spirit. Silence the voice of the enemy that, that comes to dissuade us or to try to convince us that we are somehow not welcome in your presence. Help us truly taste and see the goodness of the Lord. And help us truly continue to be your apprentice, always learning from you. And may your name be glorified always in our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.